It's pumpkin spice season. Fucking fall is here, bitches. <laughs> Let's get it on. <laughs> of the year that I transform from my typical hippie self into a yoga pant wearing Ugg sporting basic as fuck bitch. And yes, here you all can judge me. I will eat pumpkins until I die. Same. I don't even care. Don't even care. I already had two pumpkin spices today. This is my second one as well. Yeah. It's good shit. Try to avoid coffee after two or three or so. (laughs) But I was very tempted to get a decaf, but I had to like fucking bang it home to make sure to record this on time before Friday happens. Right. Cause um Katie's terrible and uh Well, I am too. I totally fucking spaced it until yeah. it was yeah, we forgot to record on our usual recording day. So Again. now we are literally down to the fucking wire. Woo. Because we are both uh heavy procrastinators. <laughs> yep. Um but this is Fascinating AF, uh, a podcast where we tell you about things that interest us. Mm-hmm. Sorry if they don't interest you. Listen well, to us anyway. Yeah, also suck it. So <laughs> leave that on a review. Yeah. Um, I have a couple notes before we break into your thing besides sure. pumpkin spice lattes. Or for me, pumpkin spice cold brew because it's still 100 during the day here. I didn't even uh, care. <laughs> got it hot didn't care yeah classic wow launched on monday and i am have no social life to begin with but now i extra don't have a social life <laughs> cue my husband playing classic in the same room as me currently yeah <laughs> he just turned around and looked at me like you got a problem with that <laughs> <laughs> Do uh, there is a thunderstorm going on right now, so you may or may not hear the sounds of thunder and a or a dog panting because she doesn't like thunder. On that same note, my two cats are actually playing together. Oh, so if you hear thumps or boxes moving around, it's because the two of them are going nuts. That's cute. Yeah. The last thing is uh, a friend of mine just went into detox and she's a listener. So I won't say her name because that's not nice, but you know who she is, Katie. And uh, oh. she uh, she went in, I think, on Saturday, Friday or Saturday. Mm-hmm. And I haven't heard from her, so I assume she's still in. But I just wanted to give her a shout out. Like, she's a badass. She's fucking pumping through it. I'm sure she feels like shit, but she is still a badass. And, um, you know, it's only been like uh, probably about five years for me since I got my shit together on that front. I still Mm -hmm. thoroughly do not have my shit together in the rest of my life. But (laughs) I did get get my drinking shit together and, uh, you know, uh, it fucking sucks. And it uh, detox is a horrible, horrible thing. But I'm glad she's gone through with that because I know she's tried to quit a few times before and mm-hmm. it hasn't really worked out for her. Mm-hmm. So I'm very, very proud of her for actually going into, you know, be monitored while she goes through this because it's not fun. <laughs> uh, 
Alcohol okay. detox is one of those things that can actually kill you. So I'm yes. glad that she is getting the support that she needs. And I think she's a badass and I'm proud of her. And I just want yeah. to give her that little shout out. Now tell us about whatever you're going to tell us about. Have you heard there's a rumor in St. Petersburg? Have you heard what they're saying in the streets? Do you know Why do I think I know that song? <laughs> you should know it. Anastasia? Yes. You're talking about the Romanovs? <laughs> Fuck yeah, I am. Oh, bitch. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, oh, shit. I think I found my niche because I have the most fun researching people. Mm-hmm. I, as seen in my episode uh, about Mary Stewart, Queen of Scots, um, yeah. I had an equally fun and exhaustive time researching this topic yeah yeah i'm really excited i'm very, very excited <laughs> i know a little little bit uh i did like a little wikipedia walk about her but i'm sure you're probably able to um dig up some more than i was able to <sighs> it's like this is buckle up because we have to talk about my a lot of things. Is, oh, is this going to be like, in order to talk about this person, we need to talk about five other dynasties? No, no. <laughs> but we there's just, when you talk about the Rus Russian Revolution, there's so much that goes into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, part of that, which I'll get into, is because historians kind of disagree on what started the Russian Revolution. So we go through kind of uh, the beginning part of it all the way up through um, World War One, and then into the family's life itself, into their uh, capture and eventual execution. Isn't fucking Rasputin involved? Yes, but I <laughs> chose, I purposely chose not to talk about him because okay. he, could, he could honestly be a topic in himself. He absolutely can, that dude. So yeah, I, I know I, a lot about that guy. Yeah, <laughs> I purposefully left him out of, of this. So yes, Rasputin is a very important part in their family, but I did not talk about him. He floats around. He does. So mm -hmm. let's talk about Anastasia. She was born June 18th, 1901 to Tsar Nicholas II of Russia and his wife, the Tsarina Alexandra Fedorovna. She is the fourth and youngest daughter of the pair. <sighs> okay, are you ready? <laughs> oh, I'm ready. So although she was Russian royalty, the family lived actually a pretty frugal life. Um, they reportedly slept on cots and were, 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 I cannot speak. They reportedly slept on cots and were required to do all of their own chores. Hmm. Yeah, so they're royalty, but they're like... No, you can put your bed together and, and sweep your bedroom and do all that stuff, which I thought was interesting. So this wasn't like servants or anything like that. I mean, they had them. Mm -hmm. They had them, but they taught their kids responsibility. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, a close friend and lady-in-waiting to the Tsarina Anne, and this is a lot of Russian words, so I'm surely going to fuck them up. Virobova describes Anastasia as a sharp and clever child who was also fond of playing practical jokes on her siblings. <laughs> which is a mood. Mm -hmm. Although being educated by tutors, a common practice for royal offspring, Anastasia was disinterested. Bigger mood. Yeah. Her sharp, witty remarks sometimes hit sensitive spots. Quote, which same. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I was like, what's the quote? <laughs> Sorry. Quote, end quote. Yeah. Yeah. 
She would, along with pulling pranks on her family, she would also pull them on her tutors, and she'd climb trees and refuse to come down. <laughs> Which we would have been best friends, <laughs> right? Um, apparently, during a snowball fight with her older sister Tatiana, she threw a rock-laced snowball. Which knocked her sister on her ass. <laughs> I love her. Uh, so yeah, she was uh, she was a fun one. A distant cousin said that she was nasty to the point of being evil. Mm, what kid isn't though? Right. Uh, the Romanov children weren't the healthiest bunch. Uh, Anastasia had weak muscles in her back and suffered from bunions, which occasionally affected her mobility. They also said that she was prone to weight gain, which makes makes me wonder if she had a. Um, what is it? A thyroid problem? Mm-hmm. Um, but she was prescribed twice le- weekly massages to help with her back, which can I get a prescription for that? That'd be great. I agree. Does health insurance cover that? I don't know. I'd have to look into it. <laughs> her older sister, Maria, also experienced a hemorrhage so severe from having her tonsils removed that it almost killed her. When she started bleeding, uh, I read that the doctor actually had to be told to continue by her mother. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and then the youngest Romanov child, Alexei. Do you know anything about him? I do. He's the Rasputin. He's the main reason why Rasputin hang around. Yes. Hangs around, I should say. Yes, yeah, because he was a hemophiliac, which mm-hmm. basically, for anybody who doesn't know what a hemophiliac is, his blood does not clot like normal. He could bleed out from, you know... They say a paper cut, but I don't think his was actually that severe. But yeah, some in some cases you can, yeah. I know some people, uh, when they take blood thinners, like any cut is a big deal. Yeah. If you don't. Yep. So because he, yeah, because he was a hemophiliac, he was incredibly frail for most of his life. Um, their aunt actually believed that all of the children were hemophiliac carriers to some degree because she thought they all bled more than normal. But Alexi was the only one who was like, this is bad. Yeah. Um, but it has been confirmed that his mother, the Tsarina, is definitely a carrier of the disease. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to jump to World War One, mm-hmm. uh, And I'm going to try and keep this as brief as possible because... I think we spent a month in my history class covering just World War One, so yeah, I no, we did um, about a, <sighs> a month and a half for World War Two. So yeah, uh, so World War One began on July twenty eighth of nineteen fourteen and lasted until November eleventh of nineteen eighteen. So it was uh, yeah, like four years, three months, and eleven days, or something like that. Yeah. Um, it began when a Bosnian Serb Yugoslav nationalist assassinated the Austro-Hungarian heir. Franz Ferdinand. There we go. Yep. <laughs> so Europe then split into two factions. The Triple Entente, Entente, I don't know, a.k.a. the Allied Powers, which was France, Russia, and Britain. And then yep. the Triple Alliance, which was Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy. Um, yep. Russia backed Serbia. Uh, and after the Austria-Hungary shelled the Serbian capital of Belgrade on the 20th of July, partial mobilization began in Russia. And two days later, it was announced that Russia was fully mobilized. A uh, day later, the 31st, Austria-Hungary and Germany mobilized. Germany demanded that Russia demobilize within 12 hours. Of course, Russia did not comply, so Germany officially declared war on Russia. Austria- you do not tell Mother Russia what to do. <laughs> um, 
Austria-Hungary followed suit on the 6th of August. France joined mobilization to back Russia on the 2nd of August in 1914. And then in 1915, Italy switched sides and joined the Allied powers. Um, That's really all I wanted to talk about World War I yeah. to give the basics. Because the basic, yeah. I now I'm going to really dig into Russia in the war, which I remember some of this. I actually took AP European history in my sophomore year of high school. So yeah. being able to learn, because in the U.S. it's like, Oh, this it's is all, the war, yeah. but here it is from the U.S. standpoint, because we don't care. Exactly, exactly, so, yeah. They didn't go into the eastern side. Right, so uh, <clears throat> I dug in a little bit into Russia in the war, um, which, while World War One was happening, Russia was had a lot of own internal conflicts. So yes. Russia almost had a war on Trump, both externally, I, I don't remember, there was front war part happening but i don't remember and but in where it was but they had you know externally yeah. and internally uh, yeah so the, the, they call it the february revolution which began march 8th of 1917 but it they is, called it the february revolution so yeah that confused me too. um and then the articles i kept reading were referencing like the new calendar and the old calendar because I believe oh, we switched yeah. to a Gregorian calendar versus the other one that I don't remember the name of. I got so, you. Yeah. So the dates, the so dates at are. That time, yeah, at that time it was in Feb. It was happening in February, but on the new calendar it was in March. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, so this was also known as the February Bourgeois Democratic Revolution and also yep. March Revolution. Yep. This is the first of two revolutions in Russia in 1917. Most of the events took place near Petrograd, which is modern-day St. Petersburg. Mm -hmm. um, Long-standing discontent with the monarchy erupted into mass protests against the food rationing from the war. Yeah. The protests lasted about eight days and involved huge mass demonstrations and violent clashes with the police and the gendarmerie. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's, the royal, it's the royal forces of the Russian monarchy. Yeah. On March 12th, there was a mutiny. <gasps> <laughs> Russian army forces sided with the revolutionaries. And on March 15th, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated from the throne, which ended the 300-year Romanov dynasty as well as the Russian Empire. Yep. A provisional government was created and replaced the Council of Ministers of Russia. Yeah. So why did the Tsar become so unpopular? Historians argue about what specific event led to this February Revolution. The roots date back to the 19th and early 20th century when Imperial Russia failed to modernize its archaic socioeconomic and political structures while maintaining the stability to an autocratic monarch. Yep. <sighs> Shit was so, fucked. Yeah, the February Revolution was a culmination of over a century of civil and military unrest between the commoners, the czar, and the aristocratic landowners. Yeah. So, cruel treatment of peasants by the bourgeoisie ran, ran rampant. There were poor working conditions. Um, Western democratic ideas began to spread by political activists, um, which led to more political and social awareness in the lower classes. So, yeah. people were getting educated, and they were like, you know, I don't have to work like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's so, a better way. Yeah. Yeah. So, all of this dis reset nope <laughs> all of this dissatisfaction of the oh. proletarians was compounded by the food shortages and previous military failures in the war yeah 
Uh, we're going to rewind prior to World War One and go back to 1905. Um, so this is the Japan and Russian War uh, era. They suffered losses in that war, and then Bloody Sunday happened. Mm-hmm. Do you know what Bloody Sunday is? Um, it was, well, I'll just let you tell me. <laughs> I so don't this... know well enough. Like, I can't just pull that information out of my head. Even when you called for Franz Ferdinand, I was like, I'm pretty sure that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it feels right. You know, what's super funny about doing all this research is I kept thinking that it was World War II. And I was like, wow, all this stuff happened way, way like sooner or way later (laughs) in history than I thought. I also thought that uh, them getting executed and everything was like in the 1800s, like super long time ago. Not really as recent as it is. Yeah, yeah, that was. Yeah. It, when you Within think about the last it, century, yeah, yeah. When you think about it, and it's like, wow, a lot of shit happened. Oh yeah. <laughs> anyway, Bloody Sunday, Sunday, yeah. January twenty second, nineteen oh five. Unarmed demonstrators led by Father Georgi Gapon Gapon were fired upon by the Imperial Guard as they marched towards the Winter Palace to present the Tsar with a petition. Mm-hmm. The petition made clear the issues in the working class and called for improved working conditions, fairer wages, and a reduction in the working day to eight hours. Whoa, it used to be longer than that? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, we definitely, <laughs> I don't know. We probably still had child labor around that time, though. Oh, I'm sure. I can't remember. Uh, I feel like child labor is one of those industrial revolutions. Well, you also have to remember that child labor, I think, is really only a thing in the U.S. No. No? Nah. Timmy can lift a wrench. Timmy can run things back and forth. That is definitely not a... I mean... No, 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 no. I'm not saying just in the U.S. I'm saying that child labor laws have only been introduced in the U.S. I and maybe uh, now, but back then, I have no idea. That yeah, think- we might have been on like the cutting edge of not having child labor, but and we still it still happens in some poor. That's areas. what I'm saying. Yeah, but so I, don't, I can't say for certain. Anyway, so yeah, sorry. Bloody Sunday. It's okay. Bloody Sunday happens. Uh, about 200 people were killed, and another 800 were wounded in this demonstration. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number is pretty uncertain, though, because the shootings began around 10 to 11 in the morning, and then the last of them happened as late as 2 p.m., and they consisted of oh. several small skirmishes. Okay. So it's like there's a group of people doing this demonstration, and you know some of them don't get off work until then, so then they're trying to get to the Winter Palace by this time. And so it, it happened in a bunch of different places, and it wasn't yeah. like, okay. oh, so it was 200 like people were shot. Yeah, 200 yeah. people were shot right here in front of the palace. Like, that's not what happened. Um, okay. So anti-government sources claimed that as many as 4,000 people were killed, though Probably, most yeah. estimate, yeah, most estimate 1,000 killed or wounded from shots or from being trampled during the panic. Yeah. Crowd crush, honey. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. That'll happen. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, strikes, riots, and mutiny on the battleship Potemkin ensued, which apparently that was a super famous mutiny. I didn't go into it, though. So yeah. if you're interested on cool. researching the mutiny on the battleship Potemkin, there you go. Yeah. So the Tsar uh, resorts to brute force um, between October 1905 and April 1906, so in a six month and- time span. This is still Nicholas II, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, an estimated 15,000 peasants and workers were hung or shot. Woo! 20,000 were injured. 
and 45,000 were sent into exile. Yeah, that's how you get unpopular real fast. This gives him the nickname Nicholas the Bloody. Yeah. So when World War I broke out, tensions were eased somewhat as a wave of nationalism breaks out. Virtually all classes and political deputies supported Russia's choice to enter the war. Yeah. There were some early wins for Russia, but also some notable losses. Tannenberg, Missouri, and Russian Poland. Mm-hmm. By January of 1917, so a couple years into the war, the number of dead, missing, and wounded had racked up a 6 million person body count. Yeah. Morale was at its lowest, mutinies were abound- abundant, and incompetent officers and commanders were called up to serve. Yep. The desertion rate p- pre-revolution rounded to about 34,000 a month. <laughs> you ain't got no army left. Like, <laughs> right? They're all just like, yeah, I'll take my shot out on the fucking Arctic wasteland. Fuck right. this, man. Yeah. So in the summer of 1915, Nicholas decides he's going to try and boost morale by taking personal control and command of the army. This proves disastrous. I was going to say, and... Uh, <laughs> He instantly regretted that. Uh, He managed to make himself more unpopular by associating the monarchy with a now unpopular war. He also managed to irritate his own commanders by interfering. And also being at the front of the war made him unavailable to govern. So this leaves the Tsarina, a German noblewoman, Alexandra, as leader. She was vastly unpopular due to her heritage and was often accused of being a spy. And then there was also rumors with Rasputin about him being her lover and whatever. Yeah. So she's, people don't like her. She was ineffective as a ruler and angered the military council by announcing a rapid succession of different prime ministers. I think there was something like six different prime ministers. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've always had the feeling that even Nicholas II was kind of incompetent too, though, that he was just like... Well, just not really cut out for the job. You, you do know that like hemophilia is common in incestuous children. No, yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, no. there's yeah. some not good stuff happening. <laughs> exactly. Because exactly. I'm sure, I'm sure the two of them are related somehow. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, all those, well, all those royalty bloodlines are so just destroyed. Kept in house. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, did you know? Did you know that Nicholas II and the King Henry of Britain at the time are cousins? No, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, they're cousins, and then their I kids actually, would marry. You know, yeah, like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, so that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, back home, famine loomed, and commodities became scarce. Uh, there's issues with the railroad, and refugees from now German-occupied parts of Russia were flooding in. Mm-hmm. Inflation soared, wages could not keep up, and the Tsar was actually warned by his council that he has to form a new constitutional government, like in the aftermath of the 1905 revolution to aid, and he completely ignored him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Historian Edward Acton says, quote, by stubbornly refusing to reach any modus vivendi with the progressive bloc of the Duma, which is their parliament, Nicholas undermined the loyalty of even those closest to the throne and opened an unbridgeable breach between himself and public opinion. Yeah. So the Tsar had lost the support of the military, the nobility, Russian parliament, and the Russian people. That's why I say, like, he was just incompetent because he just was, like, dicking around like, fuck you, I'm the Tsar. You know? <laughs> Pretty much. Um, fun fact, uh, Bolshevik apparently means ones of the majority. Hmm. Well, that I didn't makes, know that. 
I mean, it makes sense in co- the context that I know the Bolshevik now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so enter Vladimir Lenin, who, with the help of the German government, which ushered into Russia on April 16th, 1917, all of the discontent yeah. and the weak Russian provisional government led to the rise of the Bolshevik party, which was led by Lenin. Yeah. This party's motherfucker. <laughs> this party's main mission basically was to end the war, give land to the peasants, and give bread to the workers. Yeah. That was what they wanted. Communism, hoes. Yeah. The provisional government pretty much just ignored them. So the Bolsheviks, <laughs> along with other socialist faction, turned to worker militias into the Red Guard, later called the Red Army, which was mm-hmm. totally under their control. And they did a lot of shit with their Red Army. <laughs> yeah, they did. Uh, the October Revolution happens, which is a Bolshevik-led army insurrection in Petrograd, St. Petersburg, consisting of workers and soldiers successfully overthrowing the provisional government, which transferred all authority to the Soviets, who then relocated the capital to Moscow. Yep. Uh, the party did succeed in ending Russia's participation in World War One with the signing of the Treaty of Brest... I was really good at saying this, and now I can't. <laughs> Brest-Litovsk. Brest-Litovsk? <laughs> that sounds right. Brest-Litovsk. B-R-E-S-T-L-I-T-O-V-S-K. Brest-Litovsk. I'd have to read it. Brest-Litovsk. Okay, um, Brest-Litovsk. Yep, they reorganized the former empire into the world's first socialist state and established a federal government. Soviet power was established in the newly independent republics and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, a.k.a. the USSR, was born. Yep. Okay, so now we got a history of what the heck's going on in Russia. Yeah. So now we're going to kind of dig more into uh, the Romanovs themselves. Yeah. During World War One, Anastasia and her sisters would visit the wounded. Though she was too young to become a Red Cross nurse, her mother and, sister- and older sisters were. She would try to lift the soldier's spirits by playing various board games with them, which yeah. I thought was sweet. Yeah. Uh, in February of 1917, during the February Revolution, Anastasia and her family were placed under house arrest. Okay. The Bolsheviks then approached the palace that they were staying in, and Alex... Al... Alexander. Alexander. <laughs> Alexander Kerensky of the provisional government moved the family to Siberia to try to protect them. Wow. So they had to flee the country. Yeah. So while in Siberia, Anastasia and her sisters sewed their family jewels into their clothing in an attempt to hide them from their captors. Um, their mother, their father, and I think the oldest sister had been moved to Yekaterinburg, which is back in Russia. Um, first because Alexei was so sick. Yeah. Um, so upon arrival to Yekaterinburg, uh, their mother, Nicholas and Maria had written back to them and said, Hey, hide your shit because we were searched and all our stuff was confiscated upon arrival to Yekaterinburg. Okay. So, so the younger ones had warning. Um, so they tried to hide all their stuff. Um, so once the, the Bolsheviks had seized a majority in Russia, the Romanovs were then moved to the, I, Ipetiev House, which is the mm-hmm. house of special, special, <laughs> yes, <laughs> the house of special purpose. Uh huh. The stress and uncertainty really took its toll on Anastasia, and she wrote to her friend um, while she was actually still in Siberia and said goodbye. Don't forget us. Oh wow! Yeah, at seventeen, which yeah. that gives me total like Anne Frank vibes. Yeah, like she knows the end is near. Yeah. Ugh. I just I find this all 
the parallels between Anne Frank and the treatment of the Romanovs seems mm-hmm. very, very similar. And I get into all that and you're going to be, I okay. learned a lot that I didn't know. Anyway, uh, during captivity, the Romanovs did still enjoy themselves to the best of their ability. And the younger ones would actually put on plays for entertainment. And uh, apparently Anastasia put on one that was so funny that the whole house was roaring with laughter. Guards included. <laughs> which should not have happened. Yeah. Um, one of the guards at the Ipetiev house remembered Anastasia as very friendly and full of fun, while another one called her offensive and a terrorist. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe she liked one of them and maybe the other one was an asshole. So she treated him like shit. Sounds apparently, like she was pretty headstrong. Yeah. Apparently her occasional provocative comments caused tension within the ranks. However. So she was coming on to him. <laughs> Well, however, the soldiers reportedly drew lewd images on the fence to offend the girls, so they probably deserved it. Yeah. What lewd drawings? I don't know. Um, So March 1st, 1918, the family is probably now... Probably just placed- dicks. Probably. People have been yeah. drawing dicks on things since Forever. we can paint on cave walls. <laughs> uh, March 1st, 1918, the family is now placed on a soldier's ration. Ooh. Yeah. So I think they got like pieces of bread. Occasionally they get some meats. Um, a fourteen salty yeah. as fuck meat. Yeah, uh, a and fourteen a pack of cigarettes. I don't think they got cigarettes. <laughs> they did. Uh, a fourteen. <laughs> I never read anything about it. Uh, a fourteen-foot okay. fence was erected outside of the house. Upon learning that when Nicholas was swinging, onlookers could see his legs. Another fence was erected higher and longer than the first. And the Jeez. house was now completely isolated. Yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. The windows and this were all... Was after the revolution, right? During. During the revolution. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Got you. It, they were placed under house arrest during the February revolution, but during the entire Russian Civil War and Russian Revolution, they were... Just isolated. Basically prisoners. Yeah. Um... The windows were all sealed shut, and eventually they were painted with whitewash, but before that they were covered in newspaper. In the summer, Anastasia became increasingly restless and at one point tried to open a window to get some fresh air and actually was fired upon by a sentry. Whoa! Yeah. Narrowly missing her, the article said. Wow. But she didn't try to open a window again. fucking hell. Yeah. No, it was not... Basically... At first, I was thinking this was for their safety, and then I realized this is, yeah, they're prisoners. Yeah, they're prisoners. So what, what was interesting, and this is all this is all pretty much new information to me because the way that in school this was always, if we ever talked about the Romanovs, it was the Czar's family was captured and they were executed. Yeah, yeah, that was doesn't... that was all you knew. You didn't know about the conditions that they were living in. You didn't know yeah. how long they were in captive for before they yeah. got killed. So a Holy lot of shit, this, dude. a lot of this is very new information for me. Yeah. Um, the guards, of course, had complete access to all the rooms at any time. But if the family wanted to leave their room, they had to ring a bell. Even Ugh. if they wanted to, yeah. Even if they wanted to use the restroom, they had to ring a bell. Ugh. Basically, been like, ring, ring. Can I come out of my fucking room? Ugh. Um, a strict water ration was enforced when the guards complained that the water regularly ran out. So they. Now couldn't have nice long showers to decompress with. Yeah. The family was pretty much slowly stripped of anything 
that came from outside the house. There was no newspapers, no visitors. In fact, a cousin was told to leave at gunpoint when she arrived to see them. Whoa. Yeah. They were only allowed recreation twice a day in the garden for only a half hour, once in the morning and once in the afternoon. And no that one was allowed. Terrible. No one was allowed to speak to the prisoners. Wow. Uh, even the doctor's visits to a very sickly Alexi were curtailed. Oof. Mm-hmm. Ugh. However, on July 14th of 1918, so they've been incarcerated and they're like on house arrest for basically a year now. Mm-hmm. Uh, local priests in Ekaterinburg held a private church service for the family and the priests reported that the family fell to their knees during the prayer for the dead and the girls were despondent and hopeless, which is very uncommon for the family. Oh my god. Yeah, they were fucking miserable. Yeah. They were One probably priest- not being treated very well by the guards either. No. Corruption One priest rampant. One priest reportedly said to the other, quote, something has happened to them in there, end quote. Yeah. No shit. Yeah. So 16 men of the internal guard slept in the basement, hallway, and the commandant's office during shifts. Yeah. The the external guard led by Pavel fucking Med M-E-D-V-E-D-E-V Med 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 (laughs) There's no (laughs) S-K. <laughs> I'm just like names usually end in isk. I'm gonna add no. that. Medlevi. Medved Medvedev. Med Medvede. I don't know. Med Medvede. Whatever. Whatever his first name was. Anyway. The external guard led by that guy numbered fifty-six people and were accommodated in the pu- <laughs> Sorry, she's making me laugh. <laughs> led by that guy. <laughs> That's good shit. Bless you. Bless you. <laughs> he goes sorry <laughs> uh, uh, these 56 men were accommodated in the Popov house which was opposite of the IPF house mm-hmm. uh, the guards were allowed to bring in women for sex and drinking sessions in that house and in the basement rooms of the IPATF house so you know so they're just, just fucking party. parading yeah. yeah there were four machine gun emplacements one in the bell tower of the cathedral across the street that was aimed towards the house a second in the basement window of the house facing the street a third monitored the balcony overlooking the garden at the back of the house and a fourth in the attic overlooking the intersection which was directly above the czar and czarina's bedroom Mm. so there there's a lot of firepower in and around the house yeah there were 10 guard posts uh, in around the house, and the exterior was patrolled twice hourly, day and night. In early May, the guards deprived the prisoners of the piano in the dining room and moved it to the commandant's office located next door to the Romanovs' bedrooms. Here, they took pleasure in humiliating them in the evenings by singing Russian revolutionary songs while drinking and smoking. So they're like, hey, I'm gonna rub it in your face giant now. dicks. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. Uh, they also listened to the Romanov's gramophone records on the confiscated phonograph. The lavatory uh, the lavatory on the landing was also used by the guards who scribbled political slogans and crude graffiti on the walls. Yeah. The number of guards at the Ipetiev house totaled 300 when the Imperial, Imperial family was killed. That seems excessive. Right? For I think well, so they're a family of six 
Plus yeah. uh, some of their loyal servants were also living there. So for like 20 yeah. people, there's 300 people guarding a 20 person for all intents and purposes family. It's a political thing. It, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's. Yeah. Um, the guards being awful was mitigated a little bit when a new commandant came in on July 4th. The guards no longer had access to the Romanov rooms unless they were one of his name was Yurovsky. Unless he was mm-hmm. one of the, that guy's like inner circle. Okay. Uh, so this guy comes in. He's basically like out with the old and with the new and only kept the most senior officers. Um, he wanted dedicated Bolsheviks who knew who he knew would do whatever was asked of them. And yeah. they were hired with the understanding that they would be prepared to kill the czar. Okay. Which, of course, was they were sworn to secrecy about that bit. Yeah. Uh, the Russian Civil War continues. The White Army, which is a loose alliance of anti-communist forces, threatens to capture Ekaterinburg, where the Romanovs are being held. The Bolsheviks obviously fear that the White Army would use the Tsar or any of his family to rally support to the anti-communist cause. Yeah. Uh, They also feared that if the Tsar or any of his family, should he die, would be seen as the legitimate ruler of Russia by other European nations. So this would mean that the White Army could negotiate for foreign aid in the Civil War. Yeah. So we're, if that's you think why they're still to, alive. Yeah. Well, if you think back to Mary Stewart, you know, she was also ferried around basically from castle to castle yeah. when she was under Elizabeth's rule. It's, it's the same thing. Yeah. Except they're trying to prevent what did happen with Mary Stewart. They're trying to prevent this family becoming martyrs yeah. for a cause, which absolutely happened with Mary Stewart. Yeah. Anyway, uh, according to historian David Bullock, the Bolsheviks believed that the Czechoslovaks were on a mission to rescue the family. So they panicked and executed their wars. Okay. Falsely. That the checks were yeah. not. That was not what they wanted to do. Um, so the White Army did end up taking Ekaterinburg on the 25th of July. Yeah. This happens after everything I'm about to talk to, talk to you about. Yeah. Falsified letters with Romanov responses were provided to the Central Executive Committee in Moscow that, quote, justified the liquidation of the imperial family. So they basically, from what I read, created letters, said they were from so-and-so, even ferried them through legitimate people. And Nicholas did respond in pretty much on the outside of the envelope and in the extra spaces in the letter. And that basically led to them getting killed because somebody wow. else faked. Yeah. Yeah. So July 13th, a demonstration by the Red Army across the street from the house led to a small rebellion that was squashed by the Red Guard by them opening fire on the protesters. And all of this happened within earshot of the Tsar's bedroom window. Authorities, of course, exploded the, exploited the incident, claiming it to be a monarchist-led rebellion that threatened the security of the prisoners at the house. Yeah. Nicholas writes in his diary of the commandant, quote, we like this man less and less. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Which just made me laugh because I'm like, yeah, such a simple, like, I'm sure it was so much worse than we like this man less and less. If yeah. it were me, I'd be like, this fucking dickhead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in they, late June. They definitely had a much nicer way of going about things. Oh, yeah. Especially when it comes to those diaries and journals. Yeah. They were so, like, 
And I'm sure it's because, like, what if my diary falls into the wrong hands? You know? Yeah. Yeah. We need to be uh, able to uh, spin it politically. Right yeah. yeah. Um, so before that demonstration happens in late June, the Bolsheviks decide that the czar has to die. Um, there was some talk about, you know, okay, just Nicholas has to die. And then there's like, well, no, the women have to die too. We have to kill a family. Yeah. So there was, there was some contention on whether it was the whole family was Im- immediately decided that they all had to be executed or if it was just the czar. Yeah. So, moving into the planning of the execution. On July 14th, just a day after this protesters thing breaks out, uh, the commandant finalizes the disposal site and how to destroy as much of the evidence as possible. Yurovsky wanted to gather the family, and I'm just going to post, actually, a trigger warning. Um, There is some not so great language that's used in uh, describing how he wants to kill the family. So if, oh, if okay. you, yeah, trigger warning for anybody listening. If you start hitting that 15 second thing, if you're concerned. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's in and out of this, the probably the rest of this episode. Oh. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, stop, stop hitting that button and just go listen to the cannibalism episode. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. All right. (laughs) So Yurovsky wanted to gather the family and servants in a closely confined space from which they could not escape. The basement room was chosen for this purpose, and it had a barred window which was nailed shut to muffle the sound of shooting and in case of any screaming. Shooting and stabbing them at night while they slept or killing them in the forest and then dumping them into the icet pond with lumps of metal weighed to their bodies was ruled out. Yurovsky's plan was to perform an efficient execution of all 11 prisoners simultaneously, though he also took into account that he would have to prevent those involved from raping the women or searching the body for jewels. Having previously seized some jewelry, he suspected more was hidden in their clothes. The bodies were stripped naked in order to obtain the rest. This, along with the mutilations, were aimed at preventing investigators from identifying them. On July 16th, Yurovsky was informed that by the Ural Soviets and the Red Army contingents were retreating in all directions and the executions could not be delayed any longer. A coded telegram seeking final approval was sent by Golosh Shiokin and Georgi Serov at around 6 p.m. to Lenin in Moscow. There is no documentary record of an answer from Moscow, though. Um... And Yurovsky insisted that he got an order from the CEC, so that committee, to go ahead. Mm -hmm. um, And it had been passed on to him by the G name that is far too long for me to pronounce. Yeah. At about seven. So about an hour later. This was consistent with a former Kremlin guard uh, who in the late 1960s claimed that Sverdlov personally instructed him to take a telegram to the telegraph office confirming the CEC's approval of the trial, quote, which was code for the execution. Yeah. Uh, but with strict instructions that both the written form and the ticker tape should be brought back to him immediately after it had been sent. Yeah. So at 8 p.m., Yurovsky sent his chauffeur to acquire a truck for transporting the bodies, bringing it with bringing with it rolls of canvas to wrap them in. The intention was to park it as close to the basement entrance as possible with its engine running to mask the noise of gunshots. Yurovsky and Pavel Medevded, whatever his name is. <laughs> collected 14 handguns to use that night 
In the commandant's office, Yurovsky assigned victims to each killer be before distributing the handguns. He took a Mauser and Colt while Ermakov Irma armed himself with three Nagants, which uh, Nagants apparently were still using powdered gunpowder. Like old school black yeah. powder, rifle, flintlock yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like handguns you see today, which were like semi-automatic and don't need gunpowder those were still actually kind of being distributed okay all yeah. right so it was relatively new technology yeah okay um one okay so this guy arms himself with three guns a different kind of gun and a bayonet but he was also the only one who was assigned to kill two prisoners, Alexandra and Botkin, which I think is one of their uh, servants. Yeah. Yurovsky instructed his men to shoot straight at the heart to avoid an excessive quantity of blood and get it over with quickly. And at least two of the lets, which that's a Russian term for anybody who's not Russian, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, an Austro-Hungarian prisoner of war named Andris Verhoss and Aldolf Lepa himself in charge of the let contingents refused to shoot the women. So a few people were like, I'm not killing the, the women in the family. There's no way. Yeah. Um, so Yurovsky sends them to the house across the street where they sent, where they pr basically paraded all the women around uh, for failing at quote, the important moment in the revolutionary duty. Mm. Neither Yurovsky nor any of the killers went into the logistics of how to efficiently destroy 11 bodies. And he was also, under pressure of ensuring that no remains would later be found by monarchists who would exploit them to rally anti-communist support. Yeah. All right. Here's the execution night. So bear with me. Okay. While I'm the on by while my the butt cheeks to my seat, <laughs> I'm buckled in. You've been very quiet. It's okay to talk. Though well, this is I'm very just sad. like, yeah, I'm just like a little upset and sad about the idea of especially how like plain he is about you know i just want to put them all in a room and shoot them all yeah you know like it's just very blase horrifying yeah and you know it's, so it's little... almost he almost makes it like it's relaxing like oh we're just yeah gonna put like them all just... in this basement and shoot them and we're done and yeah, and then well, so, we need to make like, sure we have a place yeah. to put the bodies, you know, just like kind of going through it very it's, analytically and yes. unemotionally. Yes. That's making me a little uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And also thinking, like, why did they need to kill the servants? Why did they need to kill the rest so of the family? Yeah. They've already, so I didn't go into this, but they already took one of the tutors and uh, one of the family servants and executed them. The family had no idea. They left. The Bolsheviks mm -hmm. killed them because of something. I don't remember what it was. So they've already lost a few of their... And they loved their servants. They treated them like family. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Right. Go on. While the Romanovs were having dinner on the 16th of July in 1918, Yurovsky entered the sitting room and informed them that the kitchen boy was leaving to meet his uncle who had returned to the city and was asking to see him. However, he had already his uncle had already been shot and killed. So the family was very upset as this child was Alexei's only playmate and he was the fifth member of the imperial entourage to be taken from them. But they were assured by Yurovsky that he would be back soon. Okay. 
However, Alexandra did not trust him, writing in her final diary entries just hours before her death, quote, whether it's true, and some was, I don't know, it says sick. I don't know what that means. And we shall see that. There's more to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I've seen that before. It's like a... I hate it. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Because then it's like, okay, the rest of the sentence doesn't make any sense. I'm looking it up. (laughs) But anyway, she says whether it's... Basically, whether it's true or not, we are going to see this boy again. Okay. Oh, oh, that's dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the child was, in fact, kept in that house that night and executed family. Oh, used in brackets after copied or quoted word that appears odd or erroneous to show that the word is quoted exactly as it stands in the original. As in a story must hold a child's interest and enrich his sick life. Hmm. So the word might seem awkward, but I swear it's the way it's supposed to be. Basically. Ah. (laughs) So she wrote that whether it's true and we shall see the black again. Okay. Yeah. So that's just all right. Um, But I'm sorry. I misspoke. Uh, The child was kept in the house cross street that night. Um, Yeah. actually saw no reason to kill him and want him to removed before the execution took place. Okay. So that child was make not. sure he would be okay. Yeah. Well at um, least that kid got to get didn't well, still stuck in fucking communist Russia, but yeah. <laughs> so around midnight on the 17th of July, Yurovsky, the commandant of the House of Special Purpose, ordered the Romanov's physician, Dr. Eugene Botkin, to awaken the sleeping family and ask them to put on their clothes under the pretext that the family would be moved to a safe location due to impending chaos in Hederenburg. The Romanovs were then ordered into a 6 meter by 5 meter or 20 foot by 16 foot semi-basement room. Nicholas asked Yurovsky if they could bring two chairs on which the Sarovich, Alexei, and Alexandra could sit. Yurovsky's assistant, uh, Gregory Nikulin, remarked to him that the, quote, heir wanted to die in a chair. Very well, then, let him have one, end quote. The prisoners were told to wait in the cellar room while the truck that would transport them was being brought to the house. A few minutes later, an execution squad of secret police was brought in, and Yurovsky read aloud the order given to him by the Ural Executive Committee. Quote, Nikolai Alexandrovich, in view of the fact that your relatives are continuing their attack on Soviet Russia, the Ural Executive Committee has decided to execute you. Remember, Henry, which is Britain, is part of the uh, alliance powers. Yeah, yeah, the allied powers, yeah. Yeah. So Nicholas, facing his family, turned and said, what? What? Yurovsky quickly repeated the order and the weapons were raised. The Empress and Grand Duchess Olga, according to a guard's reminisce, had uh, tried to bless themselves but failed amid the shooting. Yurovsky reportedly raises his Colt gun at Nicholas's torso and fires. Nicholas fell dead, pierced with at least three bullets in his upper chest. The intoxicated Peter Ermakov, the military commissioner for the Verk Aitsetsk, shot and killed Alexander with a bullet wound to the head. He then shot at Maria, who ran for the double doors, hitting her in her thigh. The remaining executioners shot chaotically and over each other's shoulders until the room was so filled with smoke and dust that no one could see anything at all in the darkness nor hear any commands amid the noise. Dude, what a fucking clusterfuck. Yep. 
Like, what a fucking mess. Mm. Yeah. God damn. Talk about botched. Mm-hmm. Alexei Kabanov, who ran out onto the street to check the noise levels, heard dogs barking from the Romanov's quarters, because one daughter actually had a dog, and heard the sound of gunshots loud and clear despite the noise from the truck's wait, engine. Wait, wait. Most importantly, did the dog make it out? No. <sighs> okay. Uh, there, I actually have a picture of uh, the dog's body. No! I'm not going to give it to you, but there is there is a picture. Okay. Yeah, there's a picture of, of the dog's body near where um, they ended up burying the family. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so this guy hears it, hurries downstairs, and told told the men to stop firing and kill the family and their dogs with their gun butts and bayonets. Ugh. Within minutes, Yurovsky was forced to stop the shooting because of the caustic smoke of burned gunpowder, dust from the plaster ceiling caused by the reverberation of bullets, and the deafening gunshots. When they stopped, the doors were open to scatter the smoke. While waiting for the smoke to abate, the killers could hear moans and whimpers from inside the room. As it cleared, it became evident that although several of the family's retainers had been killed, all of the Imperial children were alive, and furthermore, only Maria was even injured. Uh. The noise of the gun. Uh, that's fucking. Oh my god! Horrifying. Yeah, and just I said botched before. Now it's just taking it to a whole other level because, like, the, all of them were. All the kids were still alive. All the kids are still alive while their fucking family and closest friends are dead or dying well, next both, to them. Both their parents were dead. The there's a I do have a picture for you that I'll send to you probably afterwards just because I want to get through this of sorry um, yeah Nicholas's head like his skull and there's like a chunk of his nose like just gone cheek area gone and then the side of his head yeah so I yeah, want them bad. quick and through the heart not so much yeah didn't work out that way hun yeah uh okay. Continuing with the horror that is their execution. The noise of the guns had been heard by households all around and had awakened many people. The executioners were ordered to proceed with their bayonets, a technique which proved ineffective and meant that the children had to be dispatched by still more gunshots, this time aimed more precisely at their heads. The Tsarevich Alexei was the first of the children to be executed. Yurovsky watched in disbelief as Nikolin spent an entire magazine from his Browning's gun on Alexei, who was still seated transfixed in his chair. He also had jewels sewn into the undergarment into his undergarment and forage cap. So it took an entire magazine to kill the youngest one. Sherry's that seems just- excessive, and I don't yeah. believe it. I don't believe that it actually required that. I so think the, the guy chose to do that. Here's the thing. Give me two more sentences and you'll understand possibly what happened. Because remember, the guy originally wanted to strip them naked. Oh, yeah. But that didn't happen. That didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So Ermakov shot and stabbed him. And when he failed, Yurovsky shoved him aside and killed the boy with a gunshot to the head. The last to die were Tatiana, Anastasia, and Maria, who were carrying a few pounds of diamonds sewn into their clothing. So they think that the jewels Which had given them a degree were, of protection from the firing. 
Yeah. So it, yeah. Oh yeah, because they yeah they got to the they chance to do their before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. However, they were speared with bayonets as well. Uh, their oldest, Olga, sustained a gunshot wound to the head. Maria and Anastasia were said to have crouched up against a wall, covering their heads in terror until they were shot down. Yeah. Yurovsky himself killed Tatiana and Alexei. Tatiana died from a single bullet through the back of her head. So, truly execution style. Alexei yeah. received two bullets to the head, right behind the ear. Uh, Anna Demidova, Alexandra's maid, survived the initial onslaught but was quickly stabbed to death against the back wall while trying to defend herself with a small pillow which she had carried that was filled with precious gems and jewels. Mm. While the bodies were being placed on stretchers, one of the girls cried out and covered her face with her arm. Ermakov grabbed Alexei, Alexander Strakotin's rifle and bayoneted her through the chest, but when it failed to penetrate, he pulled out his revolver and shot her in the head. Oh my god. Mm. Fucking brutal, dude. Mm -hmm. While Yurovsky was checking the victims for pulses, Ermakov went back and forth in the room, flailing the bodies with his bayonet still. The execution lasted about 20 minutes. Yeah. Surprised Yurovsky it didn't take longer with how many fuck-ups this dude had. Right. Uh, Yurovsky later admitted to Nikolin's, quote, poor mastery of his weapon and inevitable nerves. Future investigations calculated that a possible 70 bullets were fired, roughly seven bullets per shooter, of which 57 were found in the basement and at all three subsequent grave sites. Uh, so 57 in the basement and then three other grave sites that they took them to. There was more yeah. bullets. Some of... Uh, Pavel Medvedev's stretcher bearers began frisking the bodies, attempting to loot them. Coupled yeah. with Ermakov's incompetence and drunken state, they convinced Yurovsky to oversee the disposal of the bodies himself. Yeah. Only, only Alexei's spaniel, Joy, survived to be rescued by a British officer of the Allied Aww. Intervention Force. And that pup lived his final days in Windsor. Oh, good. At least mm -hmm. he got to be posh. Yeah. Uh, Alexandra or Alexander Beloborodov sent a coded telegram to Vladimir Lenin's secretary, Nikolai Gorbanov, which you should know that name. I do. And it was found by a white investigator, Nikolai Sokolov, and reads, quote, Inf inform Sverd Love, the whole family have shared the same fate as the head. Officially, the family will die at the excavation. Excavation? Evacuation, sorry. Okay. I, <laughs> I totally like, said that wrong. Huh? Evacuation. I was staring at it and I'm like, that's not right. I was staring <laughs> at the word and I'm like, what just came out of my mouth? <laughs> not that. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Alexander Litsitsin of the Cheka, an essential witness on behalf of Moscow, was designated to promptly dispatch to Sverdlov soon after the executions of Nicholas and Alexandra's politically valuable diaries and letters, which would be published in Russia as soon as possible. Uh, Belo Borodov and Nikolin oversaw the ransacking of the Romanov quarters, seizing all of the family's personal items, the most valuable piled up in Yurovsky's office, whilst things considered inconsequential and of no value were stuffed into stoves and burned. 
Everything was packed into the Romanov's own trunks for dispatch to Moscow under escort by commissars. On the 19th of July, the Bolsheviks nationalized all confiscated Romanov properties. Same day, uh, or sorry, the same day that Sverdlov announced the Tsar's execution to the Council of People's Commissars. Okay. <sighs> now, That's hardcore, dude. So that was their execution. Now we get to their yeah. actual disposal of the bodies. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. More horror show? More I'm fuck sorry. ups? I'm sorry. <laughs> no. The bodies of the Romanovs and their servants were loaded onto a Fiat truck equipped with a 60 horsepower engine. That's so fast, guys. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's like... <laughs> yeah. All right, all right. Okay, I'm done. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, and it had a cargo area that was uh, six by ten feet in size. Heavily laden, the vehicle struggled for nine miles on a boggy road to reach the Katap- K- Koptakia. K O P T Y A K E. Y A K I. Kopt Koptyaki. There we go. I think. I don't know. Yurovsky was furious when he discovered that the drunken Ermakov had brought only one shovel for the burial. <laughs> Mood. <laughs> the fucking guy, he's like, listen, I've had five bottles of vodka since this morning, and I have this shovel. I have this shovel. <laughs> yeah. 11 bodies and a dog. We'll bury it. We'll we'll get it done, sir. We'll get it done. <laughs> well, what's funny about this guy is like, um, he Yurovsky let Ermakov choose where the burial site would be because quote Ermakov, uh, was familiar with the urban landscape. Hmm. Anyway, but he was just like, I've got to murder somebody tonight. I need to get shit faced to make it work. Well, and he had to murder children and women. Yeah. Like, I think their oldest daughter was, uh, like, early 20s. I mean, Anastasia was 17. Yeah. Like, yeah. children. Anyway. Literally children. Yeah. <sighs> About a half mile further on, near crossing number 185 on the line serving the Verk Itsetsk works, 25 men working for Ermakov were waiting with horses and light carts. These men were all intoxicated and they were outraged that the prisoners were not brought to them alive. Because what? they because they expected to be part of the lynch mob. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yep. Bloodlust. Yep. Uh Yurovsky maintained control of the situation with great difficulty and eventually actually got Ermakov's men to shift some of the bodies from the truck to the carts. A few of Ermakov's men pawed the female bodies for diamonds hidden in their undergarments, mm-hmm. uh, two of whom lifted up Alexandra's skirt and, trigger warning, fingered her genitals. Fucking pervs. And disgusting. Disgusting. Yeah. Necrophiliacs. Gross. Yurovsky yeah. uh, ordered them at gunpoint to back off, dismissing the two yeah. who had groped the Tsarina's corpse and any others he had caught looting. One of the men sniggered that he could, quote, die in peace, having touched, quote, the royal cunt. Yeah, glad he fired that guy. I mean, it seems like he's trying to keep his shit together, but he's just failing miserably. Oh, yeah. At keeping the shit together. Yeah, no, he, 
no it's yeah. awful yeah uh, the truck gets bogged down in an area of marshy ground near the Gorno Urlask or Urlsk rail, railway line, uh, during which the bodies were all unloaded onto carts and taken to the actual disposal site. The sun was up by the time the carts got came within sight of a mine, a disused mine, which basically was a large clearing at a place they called the Four Brothers. Yurovsky's men f- uh, first gobbled on hard-boiled eggs supplied by the local nuns which was food that was meant for the Imperial family. Because remember, they were just supposed right. to get moved, not killed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the remainder of Ermakov's men were ordered back to the city as Yurovsky didn't trust them anymore and was displeased <laughs> with their drunkenness. Yeah. Which, dude, come on. Yeah. Uh, Yurovsky and the five other men laid out the bodies on the grass and undressed them. The clothes were piled up and burned while Yurovsky took inventory of their jewelry. Only Maria's undergarments contained no jewels, which to Yurovsky was proof that the family had ceased to trust her ever since she became too friendly, quote unquote, with one of the guards back in May. Mm. Once the bodies were completely naked, they were dumped into a mine shaft and sprinkled with sulfuric acid to disfigure them beyond recognition. Mm. Only then did Yurovsky discover that the pit was less than three Less than three meters, sorry, nine feet deep, and the muddy water did not fully submerge the corpses as he had expected. Party. Yep. Uh, So he unsuccessfully tries to collapse the mine with hand grenades, after which his men had covered it with loose earth and branches. (laughs) Got a problem? Throw a grenade at it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yurovsky leaves three men to guard the site while he returns to Yekaterinburg with a bag filled with 18 pounds of looted diamonds. Oh my god. So yeah, I believe it when they say that the diamonds and jewelry probably yeah, protected them to pounds. some degree. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that that puts it together a little bit more plausibly. Mm-hmm. God, there uh, was what? Th- two of them? Or three of them that had it sewn into their undergarments? Maria was the only one who didn't. So that was, uh, they had five children or three. They had four. So three of them had jewels sewn into their clothing. So and yeah, 18 pounds divided by three. Well, the, you said the mom got caught with it though. Oh, that's, that's true. Why. Yeah, that's true. So yeah. We had three people with uh, 18 pounds of jewelry. That's about six pounds between the three of them. So yeah, it would, conceivably cover at least like the important bits <laughs> right well and then diamonds are they're one of hard, the hardest yeah. i think it's the hardest the substance hardest. yeah the hardest, in the yeah. world yeah anyway so it was decided that the pit that they threw them in was too shallow yeah so sergey chutzgave chutzgave of the local soviet uh told yurovsky of some deeper copper mines that were just west of Ekaterinburg. Um, and the area there was remote and swampy and a grave there was less likely to be discovered in theory. Oh, Jesus Christ. So they're going to move all these bodies over there? Yep. Jesus fucking Christ. After so he, they're in a fucking pit? Oh my God. Okay, go. He inspected the site on the evening of the 17th of July and reported back um he ordered additional trucks to be sent out to Koptiaki whilst ascending whilst assigning Peter oh I'm surprised I said that right because it's spelled (laughs) P-Y-O-T-R Peter 
Voikov to obtain barrels of petrol, kerosene, and sulfuric acid, and plenty of dry firewood. Yurovsky also seized uh, several horse-drawn carts to be used in the removal of the bodies to the new site. Yurovsky and... Fuck this guy's name. Golashkyokin, along with several agents, returned... Huh? Mr. G. (laughs) Yeah. Along with several Czech agents, sorry, Cheka, C-H-E-K, that's very different than Czech. Mm-hmm. Make that clear. Uh, returned to the mineshaft at about 4 a.m. on the morning of the 18th of July. So this is now like three days. I'm trying to fucking get your shit together. Yeah, because they were uh, executed on, on the, the 16th. 17th. 17th. But it took them like a full. D- I thought it was the 16th. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, nope, it, was, it was the 17th. Okay. 16th yep. was when it was decided then. Yeah, 16th it was decided. <laughs> the 17th they were killed. So now it's basically 24 hours since they've died. Uh, the sodden corpses were hauled out one by one using Ugh. ropes. Using ropes tied to their mangled limbs and laid under a tarp. Oh, God, the smell. Well, it's day one, so... No, the smell. That shit quickly? doesn't take long. It doesn't, oh. especially in water, unless it's cold. Uh, well, it's Russia in July. It's Russia, so it's kind of cold. So it's probably a nice balmy seventy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, so maybe not too bad. So Yurovsky worried that he might not have enough time to take the bodies to the deeper mine, so he ordered his men to dig another burial burial pit then and there, but the ground was too hard. Okay. So he goes back to his bosses and talks to them. So he seizes another truck, which he had loaded with blocks of concrete for attaching to the bodies before submerging them in this new mine shaft. A second truck carried a detachment of agents to help move these bodies. Yurovsky returns to the forest at 10 p.m. on the same day. The bodies were again loaded onto the Fiat truck, which by then had to be extricated from the mud. During transportation to the deeper copper mines on the early morning of July 19th, the Fiat truck carrying the bodies gets stuck again in mud near Porosenkov Log, which is Pig's Meadow. With the men exhausted, most refusing to obey orders and dawn approaching, Urofsky decided to bury them under... My cat just jumped onto my lap and scared the shit out of me. (laughs) Oh, my God. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, Yurofsky decided to bury them under the road where the truck had stalled. They dug a grave that was six by eight feet in size and barely two feet deep. Alexei's body was tossed in first, followed by the czars, and then the rest. Sulfuric acid was again used to dissolve the body, their faces smashed with rifle butts and covered with quicklime, which uh, quicklime is calcium oxide. It's a chemical compound that... It's like the shit you use to clean rust and shit. It's caustic, very caustic. Yeah, uh, railroad ties were placed over the grave to disguise it, with the Fiat truck being driven back and forth over the ties to press them into the earth. 
The burial was completed at 6 a.m. on the 19th of July. Uh. Oh, sorry. I was wrong. So Alexi, it was not Alexi like the youngest. It was Alexi Trupp, which is a servant. Uh-huh. Because Yurovsky separates the Sarovich, Alexi, and one of his sisters to be buried about 50 feet away in an attempt to confuse anyone who might discover the mass grave with only nine bodies. Mm -hmm. Since the female body that he chose was so badly disfigured, Yurovsky mistook her for Anna Demidova, one of the servants. Um, but in his report, he report he wrote that he had actually wanted to destroy Alexandra's corpse. Yeah. Alexei and his sister were burned in a bonfire and their remaining charred bones were thoroughly smashed with spades and tossed into a smaller pit. Only 44 partial bone fragments from both corpses remained, which were not found until August of 2007. Wow, I can't believe they found them. Yeah. Now we have the Sokolov's investigation. Okay. After, after Yekaterinburg fell to the anti-communist white army on the 25th, so just if they had gotten there just a few days sooner, like yeah, they could have it still might been be alive. Totally different, yeah. yeah. It makes you wonder. Yeah. Um, Admiral Alexander Kolchak established the Sokolov Commission at the end of that month to investigate the murders. So, a legal investigator of the regional court interviewed several members of the Romanov entourage in February of 1919. Um. And the the Sokolov discovered a large number of the Romanov's belongings and valuables that were overlooked by Yurovsky and his men in and around the mine shaft where the bodies were initially disposed of. The hits just keep coming. This guy sucked. They, yeah, they fu <laughs> he fucked up bad. It's like, I just feel like he's like, just, I'm trying so fucking hard and everything is just fucking falling apart. Wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Among them were dismembered and burned bone fragments and congealed fat. Uh, the doctor's upper dentures and glasses. There were corset stays, insignias, and belt buckles, shoes, pretty keys, obvious. pearls, diamonds, <laughs> Dude, a few did you spent even bullets, try? <laughs> and part of a severed female finger. Oh my god. Only the corpse of Anastasia's King Charles Spaniel, Spaniel Jimmy was found in the pit. Mm. which is sad. Mm -hmm. The shallow pit revealed no traces of clothing, which was consistent with Yurovsky's account that all the victims' clothes were burned before the bodies were thrown down the mine shaft. Mm -hmm. Sokolov ultimately failed to find the concealed burial site on the Kaptiaki Road. Ironically, though, he photographed the spot as evidence of where the Fiat truck had gotten stuck in the morning. Mm. Uh, the impending return of the Bolshevik forces in July of 1919 forced him to evacuate, bringing with him the box containing the relics he had recovered. Sokolov yeah. accumulated numerous photographic and eyewitness accounts, filling eight volumes. Wow. Yep. So there's um, no question. Yeah. He unfortunately died in France in 1924 of a heart attack before he could con complete his investigation. Um, the box of belongings remains kept in the Russian Orthodox Church, though, in Brussels. His preliminary report was published in a book that same year in French and then Russian, and it is the only accepted historical explanation about the murders for 65 years until 1989. Wow. So 30 years ago. 
Yeah, holy shit. Yeah. He wrongly concluded that the prisoners died instantly from the shooting with the exception of Alexei and Anastasia, who were shot and bayoneted to death, and that the bodies were destroyed in a massive bonfire. Oh, so he thought it went much nicer than it actually did. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Public publication and worldwide acceptance of the investigation prompted the Soviets to issue a government-approved textbook that largely plagiarized Sokolov's work in 1926, admitting that the Empress and her children had been murdered with the Tsar. Yeah. In 1938, Joseph Stalin issued a clampdown on all discussion of the Romanov murders. Yeah, that guy. (laughs) Uh, And then this guy, Sokolov's report, was also banned. Um, Yeah. Unfortunately, the Ipatiev house was deemed to be, quote, not sufficient historical significance and was demolished in September of 1977. That sucks. Yeah, which was less than a year before the 60th anniversary of the murders. Yeah. Like, imagine there's so many things that, like, if it had gone slightly differently, we might have so much more information than we do right now. Yeah, yeah. Because the reason they ended up knowing so much about the the execution and how badly it went was because they talked to the murderers themselves. They talked to the oh. guards. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> um, Yeltsin wrote in his memoirs that, quote, sooner or later we will be ashamed of this piece of barbarism. And even the, and the destruction of the house did not stop pilgrims or monarchists from visiting the site. They knew. Yeah. Um, so the USSR collapses um, after, obviously, World War II and all that stuff happens. And local amateur sleuth Alexander Avdonin and filmmaker Geli Ryabov located the shallow grave um, <gasps> on the 30th of May in 1979 after years of covert evidence gathering and study of the primary evidence. Wow. Yeah. Three skulls were removed from the grave, but after failing to find any scientist and laboratory to help examine them and worried about the consequences of finding the grave, Avdonin and Rhea buried them, reburied them in the summer of 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, the presidency of Mikhail Gorbachev brought with it the era of glasnost, which is, quote, openness, mm-hmm. and uh, perestroika, which is reform. Perestroika okay. was, it said, was said a lot in my history class. Yeah. Um, so this prompted uh, Ryabov to reveal the Romanov's graves uh, to the Moscow News on the 10th of April in 1989, much to his friend's dismay, actually. Uh, the remains were disinterred in 1991 by Soviet officials in a hasty, quote, official exhumation that totally wrecked the site and destroyed oh, no. precious evidence. Oh, yeah. no. Since there were no clothes that on the bodies. That shit bungled, too. <laughs> yeah. They can't do anything right. They bungled everything. 60 years afterwards, 70 years afterwards, they still can't get it right. Anyway. Yeah. Um, since there were no clothes on the bodies and the damage inflicted was so extensive, there was controversy uh, as to whether the skeletal remains identified and interred in St. Petersburg as Anastasia's were really hers or Maria's. So this is where... Um, the conspiracy starts. Starts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which basically some people believe that on the conspiracy end, I didn't actually go into the conspiracy. I have a little bit on Anna Anderson um, Mm -hmm. who she's basically the best known imposter who claimed to be Anastasia, but she also had 
severe mental issues. Oh, um, she was institutionalized in a mental hospital after attempting suicide. She first went by the name of Fraulein Un- Unbekannt, which is German for Miss Unknown, and she refused to reveal her identity. So she was all kinds of screwed up in the head. Um, so that's kind of where all the room is. Some people say that a guard took pity on her and because she was still alive when she got dumped into the grave, they say. Yeah. That's not, we know she was dead now, but some people said yeah. that she was still alive. A guard took At pity that on time, her. Yeah. yeah. Took pity on her and and got her out of there. Um, some say that she was never in the basement at all. Some say that, you know, she dug herself out of the grave and got away. Oh, jeez. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people cling to hope. Yeah. Know? Yeah. If you wanted the Romanovs to not, you know, to come back in some way right. on that side. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. And I'll get into it. Yeah. The- it being proven so um because they couldn't find there was one missing girl and the, mm-hmm. the little ones the Zarevich was missing so they're like where's the bodies they must still be alive yeah however and on those july the two that were buried away yes or burned um, yeah burned and buried away uh yeah. on july 29th of 2007 so what uh 15 i don't know seven that's 12 years ago 12 years i was gonna say 15 yeah 12 years ago yeah which I think I remember this hitting the news. Um, another amateur group of local enthusiasts found the small pit containing the remains of Alexi and his sister located in two small bonfire sites not far from the main grave uh, on the Koptiaki Road. Wow. Although criminal investigators and geneticists event- identified them as Alexi and Maria, they remain stored in the state archives pending a decision from the church, which demanded a more, quote, thorough and detailed examination. By the church? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um so Ivan Plot Plotnikov, which was a history professor at Ural State University, has established that the executioners were Yakov Yurovsky, uh Nikolin Peter Ermakov, <laughs> Stephen Vaganov, Alexei G. Kabanov, um, the other Medev Dev I can't pronounce, mm-hmm. uh, Netrobin and Y. M. Selms, and okay. then Mr. G. Also, yeah, yeah. So those were um, actually sorry, Mr. G. Uh, did not participate, and there were two or three guards that also refused to take part. Um, okay. Uh, sorry, my notes. I put in stuff that I didn't need. Oh, it's all right. Just take this out. Um, Tomorrow. Yeah. Peter, Peter Voikov was given the specific task of arranging for the disposal of the remains, and he obtained 150 gallons of gasoline, 400 pounds of sulfuric acid, and he was a witness, but later claimed to have taken part in the murders by mm-hmm. looting the belongings uh from the dead grand duchess after the yeah. killings he was to declare that quote the world will never know what we did with them which obviously was not true we found them yeah yeah uh the men who were directly complicit in the murder uh largely survived in the immediate months afterwards mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. 
And it was actually really funny because Ermakov survived the Civil War unscathed. Um, however, unlike the other killers, he received no awards or advance- advancements, so he grew bitter. Yeah. And for the rest of his life, he fought for primacy by inflating his role in the murders as well. <laughs> he was like, I was drunk. I killed yeah. still. Like, where's my whatever? Yeah, I want a gold star, damn it. Right. Um, uh, Stephen Vaganov, who was Ermakov's close associate, was attacked and killed by peasants in late 1918 for his participation. Damn. Um, Pavel Medvedev, head of the Ipatov House Guard and one of the key figures in the murders, was captured by the White Army in February of 1919. He denied taking part in the murders during his investigation. Of course. Uh, he died in prison of typhus. Okay. Um, Alexander Bello Borodov and his deputy Didkovsky were both killed in 1938 during the Great Purge. Uh, Mr. Mm-hmm. G was shot in October of 1941 in a prison and was consigned to an unmarked grave. Wow. Yep. They still all got it a lot easier than the Romanovs did, though. Yep. You ready for uh, Yurovsky? Yeah. Three days after the murders, Yurovsky personally reported to Lenin on the events of that night and was rewarded with an appointment to the Moscow City Cheka. He held a succession of key economic and party posts, dying in the Kremlin Hospital in 1938, age 60. Wow. Yep. Prior to his death, he donated the guns he used in the murders to the Museum of Revolution in Moscow and left behind three valuable, though contradictory, accounts of the event. Yeah. Although it is claimed that Yurovsky never expressed regret or remorse over the murders, and in the final letter that was written to his children shortly before his death, he reminisced about his revolutionary career and how the storm of October had turned its brightest side towards him, making him the happiest of mortals. Fuck that guy. Well, from his perspective, he was a freedom fighter. And yeah, he did I know. what he had to do for freedom, you I know? know? So from Wall his perspective... Yeah, yeah. So he thought he was like, I have made the world, or at least my country, a better place for my children. Right. You know. Yeah. So but, even though even though people say he really was never remorseful, a British officer who met him in 1920 recorded that he was remorseful over his role in the execution of the Romanovs. Yeah, I'm sure he was. He bungled the shit out of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He and his assistant, Nikolin, who died in 1964, are buried in the Novodevsky Cemetery in Moscow. His son, Alexander Yurovsky, voluntarily handed over his father's memoirs to amateur investigators Avdenin and Ryabov in 1978. That's probably how they found the graves. Yeah. (sighs) Lenin saw the House of Romanov as a monarchist filth, a 300-year disgrace and referred to Nicholas II in conversation and in his writings as the, quote, most evil enemy of the Russian people, a bloody executioner, an Asiatic gendarme, and a crowned robber. Yeah. The written record taking the chain of command and ultimately responsibility for the fate of the Romanovs back to Lenin was, from the beginning, either never made or carefully concealed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lenin operated with extreme caution and favored... He favored being able to issue instruction coded telegrams, insisting that the original and even the telegraph ribbon on which it was sent to be destroyed. So he was really good at covering, covering his, his tracks. tracks. Yeah. yeah. 
he was a nutcase and very <laughs> yeah yeah uh, that none of that surprises me yeah um in all of lennon's decisions he insisted that no written evidence be preserved the 55 volumes of lennon's collected works as well as the memoirs of those who directly took part in the murders were scrupulously censored emphasizing the roles of sverdlov and mr g yeah lennon however was aware of Vasily Yakovlev's decision to take Nicholas, Alexandra, and Maria further on to Omsk instead of Ekaterinburg in April of uh, 1918, having become worried about the extremely threatening behavior of the Ural Soviets in Tobolsk, which is where they were in Siberia. Yeah. Um, There is uh, a telegraph that they actually found telling... uh, from Lenin to uh, what's his fucking Y name? I how am I forgetting it? Yugo Shiv <laughs> Yurovsky. There we go. Yurovsky. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I've said his name three hundred times, but I can't say it I now. Know. <laughs> um, they actually found a telegraph between them, telling him to change his route. Um, but yeah, dude. Yeah. So they found one. Yeah. So, Lenin also ends up welcoming the news of Grand Duchess Elizabeth's death, who I believe is Nicholas's mom or uh-huh. grandmother. Um, she was murdered later in Alapievsk along with five other Romanovs uh, the day after they were killed. Wow. So they went on, like, you obviously hear about the Tsar, but they went on to f- try and find other Romanovs, too. They went for it, yeah. They did, like, an eradication mission. Yeah. Uh, Lenin remarked that the, quote, virtue with the crown on its greater enemy to the world revolution than a hundred tyrant Tsars. Wow. Soviet history... History... I'm just gonna say history. Historiography. <laughs> portrayed Nicholas as a weak and incompetent leader whose decisions led to military defeats and the deaths of millions of his subjects. While Lenin's Lenin's reputation was protected at all costs, thus ensuring that no discredit was brought to him, responsibility for the, quote, liquidation of the Romanov family was directed at the Ural Soviets and the Yekaterinburg Cheka. Lenin um, was a master at that shit, though. He was so good mm-hmm. at controlling the media and yeah, making sure that his public image was spotless. Mm-hmm. So the day that they finalized the burial, after moving the bodies two other times, uh, Mr. G announced at the opera house on Glavny Prospect that, quote, Nicholas the Bloody had been shot and his family taken to another place. Uh, Sverdlov granted permission for the local paper in Yekaterinburg to publish the, quote, execution of Nicholas the Bloody crowned murderer shot with bourgeoisie formalities, but in accordance with our new democratic principle. <laughs> Yep. Along <laughs> along with the coda that said the wife and son of Nicholas Romanov have been sent to a safe place. Yeah. Oh my god. 
An official announcement appeared in the national press two days later. It reported that the monarch had been executed on the order of Uralis Spokholm under pressure posed by the approach of the Czechoslovaks. Over the course of 84 days after the Ekaterin murders, 27 more friends and relatives, 14 Romanovs, and 13 members of the imperial entourage and household were murdered by Bolsheviks. Unlike the imperial family, the bodies uh, at the... Uh, the Alapayevsk and Perm were recovered by the White Army on October of 1918 and May 1919, respectively. However, only the final resting places of the Grand Duchess Elizabeth Fedorovna and her faithful companion, Sister Varvara Yakovlevna, Yakovleva, are known today, buried alongside each other in the Church of Mary Magdalene in Jerusalem. Still going. <laughs> although so official murder. I know although official Soviet accounts place the responsibility for the decision within the uh, Uralis Spokal an entry in Leon Trotsky's diary reportedly suggested that the order had been given by Lenin himself Trotsky writes my next visit to Moscow took place after the fall of Yekaterinburg talking to Sverdlov I asked in passing oh yes and where's the czar is it all over he an- or, mm-hmm. Sorry. Oh, yes. And where is the czar? It's all over. He answered. He has been shot. And where is his family and the family with him? All of them? I asked, apparently with a touch of surprise. All of them, replied Yakov Sverdlov. What about it? He was waiting to see my reaction. I made no reply. And who made the decision? I asked. We decided it here. Lenin believed that we shouldn't leave the whites a live banner to rally around, especially under the present difficult circumstances. However, as of 2011, there have been no conclusive evidence that either Lenin or Sverdlov gave the order. I think he did. Probably. Given that they all died so close to each other. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. yeah, it was planned out. Yeah. That's, that's where I'd put my money, at least. Yeah. Um, in 1993, the report of Yakov Yurovsky from 1922 was published, and according to the report, units of the Czechoslovak Legion were approaching Yekaterinburg. On the 17th of July, 1918, Yakov and other Bolshevik jailers, fearing that the Legion would free Nicholas after conquering the town, murdered him and his family. The next day, Yakov departed for Moscow and a report to Sverdlov. Or, sorry, yeah. with a report to Sverdlov. Yeah. As soon as the Czechoslovak seized Yekaterinburg, his apartment was pillaged. Wow. So um, over the years, a number of people claimed to be the survivors of the family. So there were people, Anastasia is the most uh, notarized, but I mean, there were kids who were pretending to be Alexi too. Yeah. So it wasn't just Anastasia. She's just, for whatever reason, the most prominent. Yeah. Um, so we know that eventually in May of 1979, they found the bodies. It was kept secret until the collapse of communism. In July of 1991, the bodies of the five family members were exhumed. After forensic examination and DNA identification, the bodies were laid to rest with state honors in the St. Catherine Chapel of the Peter and Paul Cathedral in St. Petersburg, where most other Russian monarchs since Peter the Great lie. Boris Boris Yeltsin and his wife attended the funeral along with Romanov relations, including Prince Michael of Kent. The Holy Synod opposed the government's decision in February 1998 to bury the remains in Peter and Paul Fortress, preferring a, quote, symbolic grave until their authenticity. 
words, Katie, words, <laughs> until their authenticity had been resolved. As a yeah. result, when they were interred in July of 1998, they were referred to by the priest conducting the service as, quote, Christian victims of the revolution rather than the imperial family. Yeah. Patriarch Alexei II, who felt that the church was sidelined in the investigation, refused to officiate the burial and banned bishops from taking part in the funeral ceremony. Whoa. Yeah. On uh, the 15th of August in 2000, the Russian Orthodox Church announced the canonization of the family for their, quote, humbleness, patience, and meekness. However, reflecting the intense debate preceding the issues, the bishops did not proclaim the Romanovs as martyrs, but passion bearers instead. Okay. Over the years of 2000... Still dancing around that martyr word. Yeah. Over the years... Of 2000 to 2003, the Church of All Saints in Ekaterinburg was built on the site of the Apatiev House, Mm -hmm. which I want to know if spooky shit happens there. Yeah, me too. I would be very curious to know. Anyway. It is a violent death. Yeah. Mm. On the 1st of October in 2008, the Supreme Court of the Russian Federation ruled that Nicholas II and his family were victims of political repression and rehabilitated them. On th- yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know what. Uh, fucking late for that, dude. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on Thursday, the twenty sixth of August in twenty ten, so nine years ago, a Russian court ordered prosecutors to reopen an investigation into the murder of the Tsar Nicholas II and his family. Why? Although the Bolsheviks believed to have shot them in nineteen eighteen had do- had already died. Yeah. The Russian prosecutor general's main investigative unit said that it had formally closed a criminal investigation into the killing of Nicholas because too much time had elapsed since the crime and because those responsible had died. However, (laughs) right? Makes fucking sense. However, Moscow's Basmani court ordered the reopening of the case, saying that a Supreme Court ruling blaming the state for the killings made the deaths of the actual gunmen irrelevant, according to the lawyer for the czar's relatives and local news agencies. Okay, I kind of see where that's coming. It's like finding the Zodiac Killer today. Yeah. It's kind of like, well, maybe we just want to (laughs) know for the sake of knowing, you know? So I kind of see where that's, like, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Um, In late 2015, at the insistence of the Russian Orthodox Church, Russian investigators exhumed the bodies of Nicholas II and his wife, Alexandra, for additional DNA testing, which confirmed that the bones were the couple. Um, during that DNA testing, they actually took some blood from Nicholas II's shirt from a prior skirmish and hair mm-hmm. from Anna Anderson and proved that the two had no relation. Yeah, so proved so, that it wasn't... She yeah, wasn't she, had she, no, she, she had no Romanov blood whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, and this is what I'm going to end on, um, a survey conducted by the Russian Public Opinion Research Center on July of 2018 revealed that 57% of Russians aged 35 and up, quote, believe that the execution of the royal family is a heinous, unjustified crime. 46% among those aged between 18 and 24 believe that Nicholas II had to be punished for his mistakes and 3% were certain that the royal family's execution was the public's just retribution for the emperor's blunders. Whoa. Yep. A lot of opinions from people who about something that happened a long time ago. Mm-hmm. 
On the 100-year anniversary of the murders, over 100,000 pilgrims took part in a procession led by Patriarch Kirill in Yekaterinburg, marching from the city center where the Romanovs were murdered to a monastery in Ganina Yama. However, the centenary was overlooked by the Russian government, who did not organize any official commemorations. Hmm. When was that? So the centennial would have been last year? 2018, yep. Oh, yeah. Hmm, Putin. Mm -hmm. What are you sneaking about doing? Hmm. <laughs> and when 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 news comes out of Russia, I'm always like, well, you know Putin personally approved this shit to be allowed out into the world, you know? So mm -hmm. it's like, can you really believe anything you just said? Yeah. I mean, I believe it. I don't see... He doesn't have any real political reason to uh, keep any of that from seeing the light, but... Right. So, yeah, that's the incredibly long history and aftermath of the Romanov family. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, I originally wanted to go into, like, more of the conspiracy behind Anastasia, but this was more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's all good. Yeah, that yeah. was... I never knew any of that. I... I uh, sorry, go ahead. I only knew very little about Anastasia. Yeah. I and the movie? Knew, the 20th Century Fox movie? That's yeah. wrong? I knew the movie, uh, but, you know, through the movie, and I was interested in learning Russian for a while there, as you knew, and I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I know Anastasia, and I, you know, looked into her a little bit. But, yeah, it wasn't that much. There's just not that much information about mm -hmm. her specifically, because, honestly, it's like she wasn't really that important. No. But she people latched onto her as like an icon that maybe mm -hmm. she made it out alive kind of yeah. thing i think it's because she was relatively healthy like i don't think had they survived yeah, i don't think that alexi i don't think that alexi would have survived yeah he would have um, died of natural causes at, pretty at a young age, age. so yeah. i think they latched onto her because she was pretty you know all the pictures of her family that i see you know she's a cute little thing like yeah she was pretty yeah. she was young she was the picture of innocence so yep even though apparently she was a little demon. <laughs> but she looks very nice. She does. <laughs> but yeah, she, she was a young, pretty girl in the prime of her life. And, um, but, I, you know, I do, uh, listening to it, other podcasts, I had learned quite a bit about Nicholas II, Rescue, yeah. Alexandria, or, yeah. yeah Alexandra. Alexandra, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, and... So, yeah, it was pretty interesting to learn that they went out like that because horribly. Damn. And they were damn. kept, they were they kept were, as yeah. prisoners, basically. They were in like a little house prison. Yeah. That's worse than actual house arrest. Like when you think of house arrest, it's just like, okay, I can't leave my house, you know? Right. <laughs> but I can still do whatever I want within my house. But no, that was fucking prison just in a house. Mm hmm. Terrible, man. Fucking, I'm glad that they at least like found everything and could give them like a proper burial, and we have the answers now. Yeah. yeah. The uh, I was just looking through this article, and so the final resting places of the Romanov family and their servants is, as I said, in the St. Catherine's Chapel in Peter and Paul in the Peter and Paul Cathedral. Mm -hmm. However, the names of Maria and Alexei on the wall do not have a burial date inscribed at the bottom. 
Interesting. Yeah. I'm not really sure why. But they weird. also, that was, they found the least amount of bones between those yeah. two. Yeah, they did. So. Because they were so thoroughly destroyed to try mm-hmm. to hide their tracks. Yep. Yeah, well, that was good. Good job. That was Thanks. a good one. <laughs> yeah. Like I, was, I said, I think I found my niche. I find people yeah. and people's lives fascinating. Yeah, that's cool, man. That's because, yeah, my next episode is going to be a doozy, too. Awesome. Um, yeah, <laughs> which, uh, on that note, uh, Katie's going on her honeymoon. I am. So we're going to just skip next week. Sorry. Yeah. Kind of. Kind but of. she's going on a uh, vacation. So I'm going to take yeah, it as well. The, the night, the day that this comes out the next morning, I leave where I live to go catch a plane at like one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah way too early and then yeah. yeah so we won't be able to record while she's out of town because it would be worse Sorry. than it usually is <laughs> and Sorry. but in exchange we're gonna come back punchy because uh like we'll i was gonna yeah i was gonna try to do a double on this one and i was like i still haven't finished my research like I'm that's okay I barely finished mine (laughs) so having this extra week it's going to be a long intense one and but very interesting even you are going to find it interesting I Mm. promise (laughs) if if we were cooler and bigger than we were this would be the week that we would release a uh, live episode but we're not cool enough yet (laughs) we have no live episodes to release because we don't even live in the same place so we have to we'd have to have a lot of uh, financial backing because we would either both or one of us would have to fly to the place to do it. Yeah. Yep. So I'm going to do the thing once do I find thing. things. You can find us at our website, fascinatingaf.com. We get show notes, pictures, fun things there. Um, did I put your show notes up? I did. Okay. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> I realized we forgot show notes one week and I was like, are they there? Uh, you can email us, please, at fascinatingaf at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you um, for our bonus episode, September 13th. Uh, we'll talk to you personally. Um, Absolutely. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all on various uh, <laughs> versions of Fascinating AF or a Fascinating <laughs> Pod or Fascinating AF Pod. Just search Fascinating AF. You'll find us literally anywhere Thanks. yeah we're very googleable mm-hmm. and we shall see you not next week but the week after bye 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 <laughs> <laughs>